Zane Lowe, Apple Music. Hey, what's up? I'm Zane Lowe. Welcome to the Zane Lowe interview series right here on Apple Podcasts. Don't forget to subscribe if you're enjoying the conversations and they show up without you even having to think about it. Speaking of not thinking about it, I never in my wildest dreams thought that I would have an opportunity to sit down and talk with someone as legendary as Gloria Estefan. Of course, the interest and the curiosity was absolutely there from my perspective, but sometimes that kind of success and that kind of career gets away from you. And you have to have a really special reason to convince somebody to take the time to have a conversation because they've achieved so much that to take the time to talk about their life and about their achievements is is almost to been there and done that, surely. So when the opportunity arose for me to sit down and talk with Gloria about her brand new project, taking some of her most well-known hits as well as other standards and reinterpreting them in Brazilian rhythms, I jumped at the chance. Not just to discuss that album, but also to dive into a life that is incredibly unique by comparison to some of her peers in the entertainment business. For a start, her marriage is one of the longest lasting personal unions in the modern music business. And you factor in the kind of success that her and Emilio have had, it really is testament to the foundation they have built for themselves and for their family. And that is in full evidence in this conversation. Gloria Estefan is also someone who has been through her struggles and her challenges in order to achieve the kind of triumphs that she has. Moving from Cuba to the United States of America at a turbulent time, working the clubs from zero attendance right through to stadiums and achieving the kind of stratosphere spheric success in the music business that you could have only experienced in the 80s and 90s. Moving from Miami Sound Machine as a solo artist, it surprised me in this conversation to hear her describe how she was against the idea. And there's a whole lot more that we dive into over the course of this conversation. Even if you're not entirely familiar with Gloria Estefan and her remarkable track record for hits and achievements, this is a fascinating conversation about a fascinating person. So I hope you enjoy it. My conversation with Gloria Estefan starts right now on the Zane Lowe interview series. It's so much fun. Oh my gosh. I mean, the song is just such an absolute standard now, a classic that to hear you reinterpret it and breathe this new energy into it, this new culture into it is so much fun and so great. Gloria Estefan, it's lovely to meet you. I'm Zane at Apple. How are you? It's a pleasure. And uh, you know what? It's When you redo a song like Rhythm is Gonna Get You, it's a, it's a chance you always take, but uh, obviously... We had experimented with samba throughout our live shows for years. We did it with rhythm. We did it with uh, conga, which is now samba, and uh, live for loving you, get on your feet. So we knew that it would work because of its African base that we share, uh, both Brazil and Cuba, where our original sounds came from in that song. So I'm glad you're, you're enjoying it. I just want you to know that the songs I chose were people that were influences in my early life, but also the original songs from which stemmed songs that I recorded in Spanish and later in the Rio album and in the very first album that I did with Miami Sound Machine, Malvina. So you're going to hear my love letter to Brazil through this, uh, you know, playlist that I gave you. Every song that I chose has a very specific reason for being. And I think especially my fans are going to get a really clear picture when they hear this playlist. So thank you for giving me that opportunity to make it because now it's been on repeat <laughs> the last three days. I mean, what's great is that, you know, you put a piece of music up like that. It's a huge hit. It changes people's lives. It changes your life. And then normally other people cover it. So for you to be able to come back and sort of do a different interpretation yourself after this amount of time, even though, you, like, as you say, you experimented in live shows, you know that it fit that rhythm. Um, it must have just been really fun. It must have been great to reconnect to it again. 
It really was fun. And that was the main thing when I did this record, you know, re-singing songs, sometimes after three decades, some of them, like uh, Conga, which became Samba, was really uh, a joy. And especially fun for me because I usually I'm with my band. I want to, we did this in Brazil with Brazilian musicians, these amazing arrangements. And uh, it was a blast for me. You know, originally we were supposed to put this record out in 16 and 17, but I lost my mom right before I was going to go in to do the vocals and I just couldn't sing. Mm -hmm. So I said, the kind of joy that we want to put on this record, I'm not feeling right now. So it was really important for me to take the time to grieve and come back with the joy that I knew that my mom would have loved. She heard all the music before she passed nice. and she was very excited about it. So it was, it was, uh, I enjoyed going to the studio every day and, and doing new takes on, on these classics. Gloria, you know, as long as I've been talking to musicians and artists, I've realized that the voice reflects the inner self. If it's authentic, it, it 100% follows the heart and follows the soul. And isn't it, isn't it funny that, I don't know if funny is the word, but you know, it is kind of funny that, that when you go through things in your life that are so significantly impactful, that even when you have a desire to try and find your voice, it's not there for you. How long did it take you to, to, for it to come back, to reach that place where you knew you could make an album like this because the grieving process had reached a new place? It was well over a year and a half. Uh, just I, I didn't want to wait so long that because I had been talking about the record already to my fans and and. I just needed to feel comfortable in going to that studio and know that uh, my mom was going to help me uh, in that endeavor, which she did eventually. But yeah, it took a long time. It was a very big loss for me. And it was sudden because she was doing great. And just some something happened because of a condition that she had for a long time and the medications she was on for it that caused her to have to go to the hospital. We fought for 33 days. I thought she was coming out of it. But at the end, it was her time and uh, it was brutal. My sister and I were able to be with her every moment. So that was great. That's good. And I really made my mom happy throughout her life. I, I have no regrets. I spent as much time as I possibly could with her. But I wanted this record to be a joyful celebration, which is also why when we were going to release it last October and COVID happened, we thought this is not a good moment. We were dealing with all these stresses worldwide. Then when we were going to release in February, then the George Floyd thing happened in the United States. And out of respect for the protests that were going on and the very necessary stepping up for justice, I also postponed it. But then that's what actually caused me to have it released on June the 12th with a song that's an ode to love and joy, because I wanted to balance a lot of the negativity that we were feeling and the sadness and the fear because uh, music saved me in my life. It was cathartic for me as a child and helped me through my toughest moments. So if you're fortunate enough to have fans listening, that's uh, I wanted to put that joy out. And that's why we ended up putting it out when we did. You know, I feel you've, you've made rebel music throughout your life, but you've always dressed it up in joy. And I think that, that, that it's one of those things that, that real fans know Fans of you who have danced to your songs and enjoyed them throughout their life may not be so aware that you have been fighting the fight for a long time in your own way. And I, I sort of wonder, you know, how you found that balance and how, why you decided to, to fight for your rights and the rights of, of people in your community and what you believed in, but you decided to make it a joyful experience to get people to dance while they learned. Is that a fair assessment? Is that fair to, to say? I will. 
it's very insightful on your part. I mean, not too many people have touched that uh, in that specific way. Uh, my dad was a man that loved freedom and he was a very moral man. And he took me out of Cuba and brought me to the States because he was aware of what was going to happen to the country. He was a police officer there. He wanted to be in the military and his dad didn't let him. He was, uh, my grandfather was a commander in the Cuban army and he didn't let him because he didn't want to be accused of nepotism and which was exactly the reason they were both jailed on the night of the revolution. Uh, my dad was at the presidential palace. So he took us out to raise us in freedom. And he was always a man that freedom was very important to him. So you won't hear a lot of politics in my music at all, but what you will hear is standing up for freedom of expression in songs like Oye Mi Canto, uh, the freedom of every human being to be who they are. And the fact that music got me through my toughest moments. And if I was going to be blessed enough to be able to make music that other people heard, I wanted it to be to inspire them, to make them feel strong, to uh, show them the connection uh, that we have through music, the, the roots that we all share, uh, particularly in Cuba and now in this album, Brazil from Africa, because that is the seat of everything there. And it really unites us and To me, it was a beautiful way to communicate. I studied psychology and communications in a French minor at the University of Miami. I was going to be a doctor. And when I decided that I wasn't going to do it one-on-one -on -one and went towards the music, which is what I loved and got into by accident, I joined the band for fun, uh, Emilio's band. And then uh, I didn't like being the center of attention. Imagine that. So I ended up with a strange career. I feel like that's the biggest exclusive of this interview today, that no one would have ever known that you didn't want any of this attention that's come your way for 40 year, plus years. At all. I, yeah, my mom would make me sing for her friends and play my guitar, and they would cry out of emotion. And I'd go, why do you make me sing? They get upset. She goes, they're not upset. You're moving them. That's a beautiful thing. That's a beautiful thing. Uh, but my mom never imagined that I'd get in, into music. So music to me has been a way to communicate with people that I might never meet. And I'm very careful uh, when I write something and record it that it really reflects that spirit of empowerment, of maybe speaking words that they can't speak to their loved one or crying through a breakup. But that is more impactful than politics could ever. Look, I'll be really straight with you right now, as I stand as a father of, of two children, politics is a, is a failed concept right now. Yeah, it, is failing, it really is. It is failing the youth. Young people have no yeah. faith in it. They have no desire to go into it to try to in, yeah. to try to create change within its institutionalized framework. Therefore, politics has not listened to the music and the desire for freedom enough to truly understand what people value. It has valued things above that. Therefore, music has been one of the purest communicators of what truly matters, which is a desire for personal freedom and for a better community. It really does. It bridges. And I've, I've been able, I've been blessed to be able to play all over the world to cultures that are vastly different from my own. Uh, I've played in Japan, all over the Orient. I've performed in all over Latin America, North America, I mean, all over Europe. And I always would get the same human reactions in the same points in the show. You know, we all want love. We all want acceptance. We all want freedom. We want to feel uh, relevant to our surroundings and our people and our families and our communities. It's all the human condition. And that's what's so beautiful about music. It really does unite and it, it really does connect. And that's what it's done for me my entire life. And I, I hope to continue to do so. And I've celebrated the music of different countries throughout my career, but it's always something that is natural to me. For mm -hmm. example, it's part of my vocabulary. 
when I did Mi Tierra, that was a totally roots Cuban centric album. It came from the knowledge that I had of Cuba of the 40s and 50s, because I learned these songs to sing for my grandmother and my mother. And I grew up listening to that. So when I wrote the album, Mi Tierra, I even knew the types of lyrics, how they were formed in that time. And the concept was to do new music that sounded like it had been around from the 40s. I've celebrated Caribbean music with Alma Caribeña, uh, Colombia music with Abriendo Puertas, Andean sounds with Unwrapped and Rap and Brazil that I've loved since I was a child and learned a lot of Brazilian tunes to sing in an early band. It's always part of who I am, even if I go to the extreme of the Glory album that was all pure dance, still with that fusion of who I am, which is, you know, Cuban girl born and raised in Miami. Yeah, I spoke to James Taylor about the idea of working on an album of standards, an album of songs that that he remembers from his childhood, songs that he was raised on that have a specific memory attached to him in terms of family, in terms of growth, and how approaching those songs was one of the most challenging experiences of his career because those songs mean so much to him and his family and are such an impactful part of his growth that putting his voice on them and trying to reinterpret them, it's like the stakes were even higher than following a hit record or anything of that nature. Did did you find the same thing when you approached music that meant so much to your upbringing and your childhood? How do I breathe life into this respectfully without ruining the memory? Absolutely. And by the way, I did a standards record for that exact reason. I love James Taylor. He's one of my idols. Growing up, I, his, his amazing artistry and writing and his voice that was so familiar and, and you know, like uh, it was soothing. It was like a balm to me. So, and I, I've gotten the, you know, the amazing opportunity to be able to meet him and tell him. So handsome. He's so tall and so uh, handsome. Oh my God. He really is. Such a sweet soul and so gentle, wonderful man. So I can, I can understand that because it happened to me when I did the standards record. And when I do something like this, uh, with this Brazil 305, likewise, you know, it, it was my own tunes that I was covering, but I don't, I don't want the fans to, you know, suddenly go, oh, wait a minute, what is that? And at the same time, I love, you know, playing in a new field, in a new, you know, fun way to express. And yeah, you always approach things with respect because the ones that have paved the path and that have formed us and shaped us in our music. And my music was shaped by many different people. My mother's record collection, which was on every moment of the day, included all the greats of Cuba, like Celia Cruz, Cachao, Olga Guillot, but it also had... Johnny Mathis, who I love and adore and got to do a duet with, and I was beside myself. Oh, your mother must have been completely overwhelmed at that. Oh, my gosh, yes. Nat King Cole, Dean Martin, Andy Williams. I mean, these, and then the Joe Beam and Stan Getz. And so these are all the things that I grew up listening to before pop music. And the first song that I remember on the radio that gave me goosebumps, which was Ferry Cross the Mersey, mm. you know, with Jerry and the Pacemakers. Yes. And you know why I realize now? Because if you listen to that song, the Brits at that moment were really enamored of Latin music. There's a samba rhythm to it. Very. It's got a samba feel to it, definitely. Got the bongos and the playing and the maracas. And we actually, Emilio and I are proud to own the very first microphone that the Beatles recorded their demo on. And you know oh, glorious. Stop. Yes. We, got, we took it away from Phil Collins. We were... We were both uh, bidding for it at the Princess Trust, and we outbid Phil. But you know, the first song that the Beatles recorded was Besame Mucho, which is a classic Latin tune. I didn't know, I did not know that. Yeah. So 
it, it, there was so much love for Latin music back in that day, which influenced them in the way that they created music. It's music connects everybody. And sometimes you don't even know, you know, when you're listening to a song, how did it come to be that way? I just love the fact that you gave Phil Collins a big L. You gave him a big loss because oh, yeah. Phil Collins. <laughs> he wanted it. We bought it from George Martin. Wow. And he he came over and gave us a, a piece of his mind. Ah, could you take that? I go, hey, he could have outbid us. <laughs> Why did you stop bidding? I had no idea until I started, you know, I moved to America and I really started to try to study music on a global level outside of what I'd been doing in the UK, which was broad, but really diving in in particular into uh you know the latinx the 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 way that that the latin community relates to themselves and to each other across multiple different borders that actually you know there really was a, a very strong distinction in terms of the cuban voice versus the brazilian voice puerto rico colombia and that has changed in recent years you know there's been a lot of you know collaboration, a lot of cross-cultural representation and respect. And it must have been really great over your time, even though you've always been, as you pointed out, you know, a global ambassador, but to see Latin music really come together with one heart as opposed to we do this, we do this, and we do this. Exactly. You know, that's a beautiful thing. And that's a lot of it is due to technology and the ability for listeners to be able to say, I want to hear music from this country or from this artist. You know, it's funny you say that because at the beginning when we were Miami Sound Machine, we were considered in Latin America a pop group that sings in Spanish. So each country had their own superstars that were of that country. The only one that had crossed over to all of them was Julio Iglesias at the time that really swept the whole world with his sound. So we were the first band that sang in Spanish that weren't from these countries that started getting hits in these different areas of Latin America. So we would go and perform in a 50,000 seat stadium in Latin America and then go back to Miami and do a wedding with 200 people because they weren't playing yet our rate, you know, our albums on radio in even in Miami. It took a while for that to happen. That must have been great though, looking back on it, because it creates a credibility and an authenticity within the music that you were raised and the audience, which is ultimately going to be at its most loyal. Um, you know, I can imagine that if, you know, and I've seen this over and over again, where artists break outside of their natural habitat and then try to go home. And there's a sense of, you know, there's a little bit of suspicion about it. Like how authentic a voice are you? So in a weird way, looking back on that, and you got success ultimately in America more than most. But it must have been nice to think that actually it went that way, even though you were based out of Miami. It was. We kind of came in the back door everywhere because in Europe, when Dr. Beat hit, they thought we were a an Italian-produced album because of the name Miami Sound Machine, that we were like a production. So they were looking to sign us, Epic Records, and when they call us, we go, we're signed to you on your international label already. And then the same thing happened with, with Conga. Coincidentally, when we released Conga in in uh, in England, mm. in London, and in the UK, there was a group called Black Lace that had released a song called "Do the Conga," and I guess they were they they were like a joke group or something. I don't know. But all of a sudden, we got the backlash, and Conga didn't make it big there for another year. It had to first make it in the United States. 
before it came back around. And what really changed things was when people in, in England saw a live concert called the Homecoming Concert, and they saw that we were an actual real band that performed and wrote and, and wrote their songs. And then anything for you became a huge hit and then followed all the other, the other songs followed suit. But it's funny. We've always kind of come around the long, the hard way. Well, I was going to say kids don't, you know, young artists these days will never truly be able to understand. It's not their fault and they should never be put through any kind of hardship just to prove a point of what other people, other generations went through. But that being said that they can't understand now with technology, as you rightfully put before at your fingertips, the kind of work you had to put into to have an international hit, you know, to watch it, it take, a year to break in a different territory you'd have to work a song sometimes or an album for three four years just to give it the life it deserved exactly well they do the record company and especially someone that was in it that was a big fan and loved and believed that we would do well we released three times we changed the album cover and then it exploded because he knew it would work it's just it was a matter of different people in charge or like, you know, stopping you from if they didn't like it or whatever the reasons, no? But our young kids now, they have a different kind of, you know, challenge because, yes, they can write and produce and put a, a song out immediately. But the fragmentation, they don't longer have the, the massive amount of people that would be listening to one particular show or one radio show or hear the Tonight Show with Johnny Carson that he was a kingmaker. When we, when we got on that show performing Conga, we were guaranteed a top 10 hit the next day. And it panned out exactly as they would say, because the amount of eyeballs on that show was huge. Now kids and also the fact that you can make a living being a recording artist. Now you have to get out and hoof it and play live and do a lot of things. So each time comes with its own particular challenges. I'm hoping that Technology will soon be covered by laws that will protect the writers and the artists that, that are pretty much giving away their art in many instances, because an artist is going to create their art. It doesn't matter. I mean, artists for, you know, time in memoriam, like when would a painter ever make money from his art during his lifetime? Yet he still would paint. When you're an artist, you need to make the music. So I always was going to have a day job just in case. And we worked Emilio at his job and me at my jobs before we ever took the risk to go out and just do the music because it's always, art is always going to be a risk that you take, but it can't be made for that reason. It has to be, and you have to find ways of, of being able to continue to be free in the creation of your art and not have, you know, anything, te you know, telling, you no. this has to be done now. So yeah, it is harder. And I know it will change because there, there will be laws. It's just the technology is too new. Well, what we're seeing as well is that there is a real increase in transparency about the effects that it's having on art, on the mental health of the artistic spirit because of the amount of work and the desire to be constantly in front of people. It takes its toll because most artists are naturally reticent and quite shy. They find a way to communicate through their art and now you're in a world where you have to be constantly present and in front of people. So with that being said, looking back in that rocket ship that you were in in particular from the mid-80s for that period of time, I hope you don't mind me asking, but were there times when it, when that pressure in that particular era was having an effect on your mental health and that you struggled at times to process that level of attention and what you were dealing with? Well, to me, it was like a roller coaster ride. But what gave me a lot of strength was that I was with my family, my husband, my, my son at that time. And we never went outside of that bubble. Was it hard work? Yes, it was. But we were so thrilled 
that our music had finally made it. Remember, by the time we broke out in 85, let's say that the world heard us with Dr. Beat, I joined the band in 75. I had performed for 10 years and I had been given the opportunity to perform from everywhere from one person sitting in the audience to 150,000 at a festival or something like that. So we were just excited to, okay, here it is. And we buckled our seatbelt. Was it hard work? Incredibly hard work. But since I could bring my family with me, I wasn't suffering those things. I wasn't under the pressure of sometimes women are in this business when they're a woman alone and there were, it was men, let's face it, that were in control of all situations. A lot of female artists had a lot tough time, like having to, balance pressures not only from whatever they were going through in their career but also from men that were in control so i was very fortunate in that respect and what i do tell my daughter who's an amazing musician and the best of all of us or any young artist that asks me i always tell them to be in the moment because a lot of the times i was so flustered from everything happening so fast and everything that was going and my personality that i don't like being the center of attention so that I missed things. I, I got through them rather than being in them at that moment and allowing all that love and all that, what was going on in that audience to, for me to really absorb it because I was just trying to get through that show and on to the next one because I knew I had to stay sane and stay well. But I, I'm fortunate that I did not have that issue because I did, I did have time to prepare. I had those gigs that taught me about what fame is about, you know, and it, it was, I know that it's something that's given to you and can be easily taken away. I don't, it's not intrinsic to me. I'm not a famous person. I became, you know, famous because a lot of people liked our music. So all those things help in keeping your mental health and stability and not buying into, you know, the image or what people tell you you are or thinking that you're beyond anything just because a lot of people happen to like your music. That's a big trap. Well, here's one for the books, Gloria. For someone who's so, you know, uh, openly reticent about being the center of attention, um, you know, after several years of finally achieving the kind of success that Miami Sound Machine had stri- you had strove to try to get, you swerved out um, with your husband's support and, and decided to go solo. I got to ask you, and I'm sure many have before, but perhaps the answer has changed over time. Why, when it was it was moving at such a pace, and then all of a sudden it's like, you know what, someone who's a shy individual is now going to make it all about, it has to be all about you. And that's an interesting decision. It wasn't my decision. I tried to fight that decision. It was Emilio's decision. I joined his band. Miami Sound Machine was his band. And at the time that he decided, he decided that he wanted to add my name. I was getting a lot of offers, for example, from Placido Domingo, had asked me to sing on an album with him based on the life of Goya. And Emilio said to me, I'm putting your name up front. First of all, I'm the only original member left on stage. And he was going to stop because he wanted to be in control Mm. of what was going on with lighting and sound. And I would say, but why? We have a successful thing. It's Miami Sound Machine. Why do do I have to add my name? He goes, what's Placido going to put on the record? Placido sings with the girl from Miami Sound Machine? He said, no, you are the front man. People need to know who you are. And when we dropped the Miami Sound Machine was when he stopped performing on the stage, even though we kept the band was always called Miami Sound Machine. And the same guys played with me from 86 that joined the band at that point till now. I still have my band with me and I still call the Miami Sound Machine. And 
they're credited with that, but it, I fought that tooth and nail. Wow. I did not want my name to be put out front. I didn't. And he said, we need you, your image to be known. We need your name to be known. And it's, it's absurd. You, you know, Miami Sound Machine is great, but people are going to gravitate more to a single human being than to a collective. That was his thought. And I did fight him on it, though. I mean, it shows a huge amount of trust in a relationship to be able to listen and understand that someone has your best interests at heart, even against your better judgment. And that has been proven for 42 years. You know, it is yes. one of, it's one of the most long lasting and, and inspiring marriages in show business. Facts. Yes, indeed. And I, and I sort of, I have to ask you, you know, and by the way, just full disclosure, so you know, I'm coming at it from an invested place. I've been happily married for 20 years myself. There you go. So asking you this question, you know, what has been the foundation upon which you and Emilio have built such a strong and incredible union whilst so many others around you fall? Well, first of all, we fell in love with each other, the real people. We didn't meet already. It's a trap sometimes when you get together after you're well-known or something because they always have an image about you and that may not be the person. Even though we're very different, which is a good balance because we fill in each other's gaps. Uh, if we were both like me, we'd still be playing guitar on the couch in our old house. If we were both like him, we'd be dead of heart attacks. So it's like, it's a good yin and yang there. But in the things that matter, in the priorities of life, in the values, uh, we're on the same page. We rarely differ in business or music or anything having to do with our family, even though we have different ways of thinking about a million things, but we rarely argue. And it really helps when there's no cause to argue, when you constantly are breaking down a relationship uh, by having that kind of thing. It, it's tough. And also the separations, people, especially in this business, if you're having different careers, Spending lots of time away from the person you love and other influences get in, other people get in your life. And we've been a unit but throughout. Uh, we've always been together. I'm on, we went on tour together. And even though we don't spend 24 hours a day because he's up at the crack of dawn and he's like a rocket out of the house and doing a million things, we still were, we've always been a unit, always, always. And I think that helps a lot. Plus, he makes me laugh every day of my life, sometimes without even meaning to. He's a funny guy. He's a very absent-minded guy and he's got this amazing like business mentality but he will spew whatever the first thing to come out of his mind let me give you an example like you know one day he says to me oh my god i love the record that that jerry lewis did for janet jackson and i go jerry lewis did a record for janet jackson what are you crazy and then i'm trying to make sense of it i'm thinking maybe the was on the telethon and he cut something and then we're sitting at the Grammys and he goes, look, there they are, Jerry Lewis. And I go, it's Jimmy Jam and Terry, Terry Lewis. Lewis. <laughs> Jimmy Jam and Terry Lewis, who he had combined into one person. So yeah, he, he keeps me laughing every day of my life. And uh, yeah, he's a very funny dude. Like he, he really is. And he's so loving you. Great dad, great son, you know, great husband. He's a cute guy too. He's a cute. Let's talk about those values really quickly. You, you mentioned before when you were answering that beautifully as well, by the way, thank you, that there were, that there were real values that you, that, that you landed on very early in life that you've held true to, that's kept you and your family on a strong compass line. What are the values that really matter to you and to Emilio and to your family? 
Okay, well, I can tell you, first of all, to be a positive force, both in the family, in our country, in our city, and whatever we touch, to be honest, to be true to our uh, musical thoughts, but also to be true to what's the right thing to do, be honest, to try to be helpful at every moment, and uh, try to be better, continue to grow and evolve to be positive forces uh, in the world and, and, and put out good energy. Emilio is the most motivational man I know. Uh, he gives everyone opportunities. We all really feel that everyone is the same and we give the same respect to everyone in our lives and our children have grown up seeing it. We didn't have to tell them that because we are friends down from presidents And kings to the homeless people that we talk to every day when we're on our daily walk and that we have conversations with and that we try to help in whatever way we can. And it's not a matter of saying to your kids, this is what you have to do. It's what they see you do. And it's been important for us every step of the way to make the decisions that are going to carry us forward and that we feel that our family will be proud of us and for years to come and our community and our culture because you get thrown into a situation where somehow you are a, a role model. You just are. That's what happens when you get fame for whatever reason. And we've always tried to stay very true to those kinds of things, you know, and we were raised in freedom. Our parents struggled a lot to bring us to a new country where we could be free. Freedom and fairness is another one of those values that we, that we hold dear. I mean, these are two things right now which the country is fighting over. You know, America yes. is a country in pain right now because it needs to grow, right? We're living here. This country needs growth and growth is, it takes, takes work. And you've been someone who, who came here with, you know, with your parents and started first generation, but also never forgot where you came from and what matters to you. And right now, one of the arguments on the front line of this political fight is how does America relate to its immigrant population and how does it grow given that the country was built in a large way by that population? How does it acknowledge, recognize, and move forward? You have had dinner with kings and presidents and queens. I know how active you are privately and publicly about these kind of things. And I wonder where you sit right now in relation to this conversation that's going on because it is loud and you have lived a life in service to that conversation already. Absolutely. You know, I look at things at this point in my life that have been around for six decades, over six decades, and I've had the opportunity to view uh, different governments and different, you know, I've traveled the world, I've seen a lot of different things. I have no doubt that the people of the United States are very fair-minded and support immigrants and support the racial injustices like to be that have to be protected and moved to another level because I saw it in the 60s. I had a father who was in the army in Vietnam and I was watching the protests of the Vietnam War, which I also agreed with, but I had to balance the fact that my father thought he was doing something to help this country. We know now that the things that go on in the you know seats of government are very complex and sometimes secret and really stupid sometimes, quite honestly. But we tend to hear the extreme. The extremes are what come to the forefront much more so now that everyone 
has a platform to be able to voice these kinds of things. So I have no doubt that the country is very still on that path and is on the right path. Unfortunately, government has gone a certain way where we are polarized. A two-party system to me is completely outdated. Emilio and I are non-affiliated. We have been for years. I think that there's a danger in following a party line in any case. We need human beings that can stand up and do the right thing. However, the machinery of government chews them up and spits them out if they don't follow the way that things are because power is very intoxicating and people don't often want to give up power. But I choose to be optimistic in that the people of this country, and we have every four years the opportunity to change government every two years to, you know, Congress and Senate. I would hope that they understand that we need changes. I mean, even with this pandemic, it's been absurd. One of my best friends is a very prominent infectious disease doctor who enlisted me early on in March to to do something about talking about people wearing masks. What did I do? I made a video. To me, it was like a public service announcement. I did a parody of my own song, Get On Your Feet, called Put On Your Mask. I filmed it. I edited it myself because we were stuck at home. And I love to do that, by the way. It's one of my favorite things. It's really, hold that thought. It's just working. To me, it's really becoming very clear that while Emilio is out there trying to like make sure that everything is taken care of, you're either watching Netflix or doing TikTok videos. That's pretty much what it seems to no, I am not on TikTok. <laughs> no, no, but I was editing and filming this thing myself. That's amazing. It was done as a public service announcement. I'm a micromanager and he's a macro manager. He sees a lot of things. I like to zero in on things that need to get, you know, made and minutia. I sit at every mix of every one of my albums. I'm the one that has sat with the engineer every moment of the mix until that baby is cooked and out the door. So, yeah, I like that part of it. But to me, it's trying to be, I'll be a positive force in that way. In other words, I will put out the PSA on wearing a mask because this is what we need to do. And it's very frustrating when there's no, you know, one person that isn't in power that will say, do the right thing. But I've also learned at this point that we're all flying by the seat of our pants. Nobody knows anything. I used to think as a kid, okay, these people that are in this situation, they're the heads of government, they're this and that. They know what's going on. They know what to do. I'm sure somebody's going to do the right thing. Hello. That's not the case. No. It is not the case at all. It's not. Right. I had the very same conversation with our son the other day, and I was like, if you think that elected officials are somehow put on this planet to be infinitely smarter than you or have better instincts than you or know how to do right by you, then you're missing the opportunity to, to have influence not only over your own life but positive influence for others too because, trust me, you can't check out. They haven't got the answers either. Absolutely, which is why I am so uh, optimistic when I have seen the protest where young kids went out, not just young kids, but majorly it's been the young generation because perhaps they felt they were safer from COVID, but to take a chance with their own health because they felt that it was more important to stand up for equality and for fairness and for to speak against violence, that is incredibly important. And that's what I look at and focus on, you know, our youth that you would have thought that, you know, they're coddled. And I know they call this generation snowflakes, a lot of people that they, 
that they got an award just for showing up, but that's not what how they're reacting. They are literally standing up for what's right when it is difficult for them and, and a danger. So I, I feel very optimistic and I choose to look at those things rather than the powers that be that really, you know, don't often know what's going on or don't have a pulse on what people are thinking. So if that happens, then they will get moved out eventually, hopefully. Brazil 305, this album inspired by your love of Brazilian music, this idea that you realized in process that your songs could very in an exciting way be reinterpreted in this space that they fit naturally um obviously brazil is a place that's close to your heart or you wouldn't have created this tribute to it and yet you can't go there right now you can't take this album and, and make it come alive there you can't release it there celebrate it there pay tribute to the place right now and yet we're, we're going to get this music which is beautiful and a gift for us but it it ultimately isn't the way it was meant to happen, right? And and I wonder how you feel now because I think COVID is our is our is our lifetime's great challenge right now, as of right now, on a global level. We talked about your parents and grandparents, my grandparents before, who went through that world wars. This feels of a very similar nature in the sense we're all engaged in this fight. So I wonder sort of how you sort of feel about about where things are at right now because you're about to release a record in the most unorthodox manner that you possibly could. Yes, this is definitely our world war. It's just the silent killer. You can't see where the, you know, shots are being fired from. So, it's a it's a very strange thing, but at least we have tools like this, uh not like 1918 when they had that horrendous uh <laughs> pandemic that took 50 million people in 2 years. So, we still have to latch on to the good things. The good news is that since this album was slated for a previous release, I was able to go to Brazil. We were there a month and we shot a documentary about the roots of samba because for me, it is far more than just taking my music and creating these rhythms. I've, you know, studied the artists that I've loved. I've, you know, wondered where these things came from. And I learned so much by going down there. Um, the first single that we did, Cuando Hay Amor, we shot the video on the banks of the Abate Lake, which is where Samba was born, literally, from these Bayanas, these women. It came from women, Samba. Yet later on, they weren't al allowed or accepted in the Samba world because it was viewed very dangerous for them to be out in the streets in Carnival and what it had grown into. I was able to interview... Uh, Monarca, who was a gentleman who's already in his 80s, and he established Portela, the, the second largest samba school there. I interviewed him and all his, uh, the people that, percussionists and people that were with him a part of this creation of this amazing thing. And they would break into song in the middle of the interview. It was really, it was wild. It was so good. I interviewed Alcione, the first woman that was accepted into samba that created uh, the biggest hits for a woman the first time of anyone that was able to do samba. I interviewed Maria Rita, the daughter of Elise Regina, who is close to sainthood down there. She died very young. Likewise, Clara Nunes died a year later. These women were the first women that were also accepted in the samba world. And to me, it's very interesting how even though the music came from women, because these Bayanas would improvise songs as they were washing clothes on the banks of that lake, particularly in Bahia, 
And then suddenly they were taken away. Uh, I learned of how the government of Brazil tried to silence the slaves from or thought they were stopping them from uniting or being able to come together by outlawing the instruments to play sambas. And then they just moved to their backyards and created samba de mesa, samba de roda. You know, it came from religious ceremonies, much like the music of Cuba, the Afro-Cuban music that is a part of my original conga and rhythm is going to get you, which Emilio and I, in our early gig days, performed at some of these religious ceremonies, in these rhythms. So it's to me, it's like how we're all so closely tied and how we come from such similar roots and then everything. It's all authentic. It's incredible. So we were able to capture that in that documentary, which will eventually be released. It was a, a mind expanding uh, opportunity for me when I was down there. I mean, I had been to Brazil before on promotion. I, we went down, Emilio and I, even before our music was known at all. And uh, I got the worst sunburn of my life <laughs> laying on the beach, not realizing I was directly under the sun on the equator. Oh my gosh, I'll never forget that as long as I live. I couldn't walk. That's how burned I was. Lord. But <laughs> it's good to know that, you know, no matter how much life you live and how much wisdom and experience you accrue, you can still act like the biggest idiot on the planet and not do the most simple thing. Yeah, I was a young pup. I thought, I'm from Florida. How bad can this be? Oh, it was bad. But anyway, so that music to me br brings me life. And of course, I wouldn't venture to take it over and, you know, appropriate that culture. But the part of their culture is part of my culture from Cuba. I mean, uh, the differences were that when the Yoruba tribe was taken, uh, enslaved, went to Bahia Salvador, the, the Europeans there were the Portuguese. That's why you have the Cavaiquinho, such a big part of samba music and um, that's why it grew and fused into, into the direction that it is there. When the Yoruba tribe was taken to Cuba, it mixed with the French, the, the British, and the Spanish influences. And something like a rhythm like danzón is a mix of African rhythms with French court music. And that grew into cha-cha mambo, uh, which I got the joy to, to be able to work with Cachao, one of the greats of our music there, who actually invented the mambo before Perez Prado made it popular. So it's all those things really fascinate me as a musician and as a human and how, you know, drums were our first original sound. So I was able to capture a lot. And thank God, because if, if, if I hadn't been able to do that during COVID, it wouldn't have been the same. We have videos that came from that experience, one of which is Cuando Hay Amor that came out and Samba that will come out soon that I just finished editing along with my assistant and that we recorded in that in Portela, the second largest samba school. We were able to capture some really special things. And we were there during Carnaval. I didn't get to stay for Carnaval, unfortunately, because I had to head back and, and work. But the crews stuck around and were able to capture amazing images and, and interviews with people there in Brazil. So I was very happy that we were able to do that before. Gloria Estefan, it's been such a pleasure. Our time has come to an end, sadly. But, you know, yours seems to me to be a life in servitude to family, art, to culture and curiosity. And I can't think of four more important pillars to dedicate yourself to. So I cannot wait for whatever steps you take next. And good luck with Brazil 305. It's been a pleasure. Thank you so much. Thank you very much. Take care. Bye-bye. 
Thanks for listening. I hope you enjoyed that, my latest conversation with Gloria Estefan. If you did, don't forget to subscribe. We'll be back with another brand new conversation very soon, right here.